This is a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound, B'nai B'rith. Every year, the American Jewish Historical Society hosts a conference of American Jewish historians. In 2018, this conference took place at the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. Dan and I were both thrilled to attend the event, and while we were there, we took the time to speak with a wide variety of scholars about artifacts in the museum exhibition itself. We looked at these artifacts both in their initial historical context and as a map onto contemporary Jewish issues. We're thrilled to now be releasing these conversations as bonus episodes on Judaism Unbound's feed. And in this one, we speak with Deborah Dash Moore, the former director of the Frankel Center for Judaic Studies and currently a Frederick G. L. Hewell Professor of History, both at the University of Michigan. So we're looking at a turquoise t-shirt, bowling shirt, which has a, in white, B'nai B'rith, Lodge 2589, and underneath that, El Paso. And in between the B'nai B'rith and the Lodge is a menorah, a seven-branched traditional menorah. Um, and the shirt has a white collar, and on the side it has an individual's name, Groden. So it must have been Groden's shirt. But it's interesting, it's from 1950, and I, I wouldn't have even thought that there were Jews in El Paso at that time. Ah, yes, but there were Jews in Texas, and including El Paso. Um, it, it was a community that had actually gotten started back in the 19th century, uh, when Jews did come to Texas, uh, some of them may have arrived through the Galveston Plan that was in the early decade of the 20th century that drew Jews to land in the United States in the port of Galveston and then uh, put them on trains to various places in the uh, West and, and Midwest. So that would be another way in which Jews got to El Paso. B'nai B'rith was started in 1843 um, in New York City in a uh, saloon. Uh, it began after the holidays, uh, fall holidays, and a number of men um, were sitting around. This was Sinsheimer's saloon on the what became known as the Lower East Side. It wasn't yet known by that name. They really wanted a place where they didn't have to be torn apart by these arguments mm. over synagogue practice. Um, many Jews who had arrived had come to cities in the U.S. and joined when they had a modicum of security uh, other fraternal organizations, uh, the Masons, the Odd Fellows. Uh, that were open to Jews. There were occasionally Jews who were turned away from them. So the idea began that there should be a Jewish fraternal organization and that it should be welcoming to all kinds of Jews and that it should provide what fraternalism provided in the United States at that time, which was a form of social security as well as friendship, fellowship, um, and uh, good connections in terms of business. So the Social Security piece was life insurance and uh, also gradually added on health insurance uh, because there was no such insurance available. The fellowship piece was that as a lodge, um, it would be open all the time. You could drop in. Synagogues were not open the way they used to be in, the, uh, uh, in Europe. And 
you would always be welcome to come in and meet fellow lodge members. Um, there was the special regalia of lodges, clothes that you wore. There was a special handshake. There were uh, degrees of, of membership. They developed a, um, what we might call today a logo, but a, a sign. They took the name B'nai B'rith, which means Sons of the Covenant, um, which is another way of saying Jews. Uh, and it became enormously successful, uh, the B'nai B'rith did, as a movement, and lodges started to develop, um, uh, spring up around the United States in various cities. And as it grew, they faced interesting questions about who could join. One of the earliest questions was whether it was open for, to non-Jews mm. as well. And the lodge in New York that became the, the main lodge um, decided no. But then they began to have um, regions as, you know, they had hundreds of members and gradually thousands of members. And uh, it, it was an organization that was one of the first to be exported from the United States to Europe. In the beginning of the 20th century, B'nai B'rith uh, no longer is needed quite as much for its insurance and medical offerings, and it turns to doing charitable endeavors. Uh, it had started this in the 19th century, helping victims of flood and, and earthquake, um, it had set up free libraries for intellectual exchange, but it begins to see itself in the 20th century as a national organization, not just a, a collection of local ones, and institutes a number of um, important programs. It, it has a program to help immigrants, um, to help disperse them throughout the country, the Industrial Removal Office. Uh, it has a program that begins um, in 1913 called the Anti-Defamation League to combat prejudice, and the motivation for that is in part the Leo Frank case. So Leo Frank was a, a member, indeed, the head of his B'nai Lodge down in Atlanta. Um, it starts in the early 20s, um, the Hillel organization for college students, because Jewish students are going to colleges around the country and they need a place. It begins a version of uh, B'nai B'rith for children of members. So you have B'nai B'rith youth um, uh, organization that gets established. And, of course, remember, this is still a fraternal organization. So back in the 19th century, the women asked to be admitted, and they were turned down. So not just non-Jews were rejected, but the women were rejected. So the women organized separately um, and uh, created their own organization. And in the 20th century, um, eventually, B'nai B'rith women became part of B'nai B'rith. In the years after World War II, B'nai B'rith was um, very widespread, very popular, a way for 
um, American Jews, especially in uh, smaller cities like El Paso, to connect with other Jews. It, 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 it went back in some ways to its very earliest um, reasons of, of fraternalism, of friendship, of fellowship, um, where you would meet other people and it didn't, wouldn't matter. Are you Orthodox? Are you Reform? Are you conservative? Are you, you know, secular or whatever? Um, you were, you were a, a son of the covenant, a B'nai B'rith, right? and so you were a Jew and you could uh, belong it's so interesting because I, I think of B'nai B'rith or I, and you know, sort of assume that it was established more because Jews couldn't get into other clubs, other fraternal orders, and they wanted to have a Jewish one. But the way you're describing it is that it had more to do with Jews wanting to sort of overcome the denominational divides. Yes, I think that's more. I mean, they weren't full-fledged denominations. They were, uh, they were in the 1840s, quarrels about how how one should pray what one should, you know and and also competition for um for status within a synagogue you didn't like the way it was being done i mean those were the years before rabbis arrived really you know you started your own you know a bunch of other guys you walked off and you set up your own uh synagogue so this was really much more a, a way of overcoming internal jewish divisions rather than external exclusion hmm. yeah. it's so interesting uh, in terms of a contemporary resonance because it Whereas it seems like in this day and age, we may not need some kind of alternative to non-Jewish things that are available because Jews can be admitted to those. We actually could probably use something along these lines right. today. So, so what happens to B'nai B'rith um, in the uh, 80s and 90s is that the heyday of this kind of um, Jewish fellowship uh, that is in part sustained by exclusion, um, no longer exists because Jews do gain admittance to other forms of social groups, um, both in terms of their employment and in terms of uh, just plain social life, in terms of where they can live in the country and uh, um, uh, districts and suburbs open up, etc., to Jews, and so B'nai B'rith starts to lose membership, and um, a number of the other organizations that it had created become, in a sense, bigger and more successful than the parent organization. How many people today in the 21st century know that ADL was actually a spin-off? It was created by B'nai B'rith, but it becomes a separate organization by the latter part of the 20th century. The same is true of Hillel. Right? Hillel is, is spun off as a separate organization, and, and people no longer talk about it as B'nai B'rith Hillel, because it's no longer B'nai B'rith Hillel. Um, and the women leave again, right? um, and they create their own women's organization. Uh, so B'nai B'rith is really a shadow of, of what it was in terms of membership, and it no longer has um, the same ability to speak to the needs of Jews spread around, really around the world, as it once had. And it's a really great and interesting story about how institutions uh, run their course, perhaps. 
and uh, there's so many institutions today that are trying to hold on and maybe rightly so and maybe not but it's interesting to reflect on on the story of the institution that sort of rose and 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 ran its course in american right, history perhaps right i mean 1843 and you know it's been well over 150 years and it made a significant impact um on american jews and more broadly on jews uh, in the world and it's just interesting to reflect that what happens when the original animating legacy of an organization may be needed again, but that organization has sort of gotten to a place where they can't be that, that fulfilling that need. Right, right. If B'nai B'rith could figure out how to connect Jews in the age of, um, you know, Internet and Facebook and all of those other um, electronic modes of connection, it would in fact uh, be able to revitalize itself because uh, Jews still do seek out other Jews for fellowship um, and it's one of the few organizations that recognize that but it recognized it at a moment in time when the, the physical contacts of being near each other relatively speaking in cities was what was what counted, hmm. yeah, yeah, and then flourished in the suburbs, as the bowling indicates. We hope you've enjoyed listening into this bonus episode of Judaism Unbound, and we also encourage you to check out all of our other historical bonus conversations by heading to Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Overcast or anywhere else where podcasts are featured. As always, we encourage you to be in touch with us, and you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com with any questions, follow-ups, concerns, comments, whatever you've got. So thanks so much for listening, and with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.